Hello and welcome to the See You Tomorrow podcast. I'm Katrina Logie, a creative entrepreneur and a catalyst for change. I get inspired by interviewing people who are creating change for tomorrow's world and building the future. And that's exactly what I do on this show. See You Tomorrow is powered by Harbour Space, the university of the future. Welcome to another edition of the See You Tomorrow podcast. And today we're talking with Ian Collingwood, who is the doing a sorry teaching a course called the Lean Startup Class, which covers the essentials of starting a company. And students learn how to test ideas, develop a value proposition, and other fundamental skills. And basically, you know, your background, Ian, um, is very much focused around technology, design, entrepreneurship, and education. And you have been helping startup founders succeed since 2010. So, and you, you know, you've been coaching hundreds of new ventures across sectors from healthcare, manufacturing and agriculture to retail, travel, food and e-commerce. So let's talk a little bit about your background and, you know, how you sort of got into, you know, working with startups and what you like about it. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, so I think um, I've had a kind of, quite an unlinear journey to where I am in my, in my work now. Um, but the startups thing really came about when, um, I've always liked, uh, innovating. I've always liked new ideas. I've always liked, um, the excitement that comes of, 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 you know, trying to do something new. Uh, the startup focus really came at the end of, um, my time running, uh, a UX consultancy in London called Amberlight, which was, um, a company that focused on helping large organizations to make their products easier to use and more useful for their customers. So we would help, you know, um, Vodafone or, or um, LG or Samsung or, or all these brands who were building these products. We would try and help them identify problems that people might have in how, how they use them, things that might confuse people. And then beyond that, how to kind of make the products useful uh, in people's lives, how to build value to people in the products that you provide to them. Mm. Um and we, you know, we, it was a successful company. We were doing um, great, great business. We were making good money, but it was very clear to me after a while that um, we were having not the kind of impact that I wanted. You know, we would very often come back with a, a set of recommendations for the client and, and, and they'd say, yep, that's, those are all completely valid and we will fix them, but we need to launch next week. So we're going to launch first and then we'll fix them. And and they never would because the launch would happen and quite often because of the problems that we'd found with the product, it, it would fail. And there was no version two, you know, they would never release an updated version because the first one was so bad that it had failed and and nothing ever changed. You know, they didn't ever change the way that they were building products. They didn't ever change any of the processes. They just saw, you know, they saw this thing called usability or user experience as a kind of tick, tick in the box at the end of the process that you said, let, we've done our usability, that's it. And it became abundantly clear to me that that great though it was that they were paying us loads of money, um, that we weren't making much of a difference. You know, we weren't helping them change the culture of the company away from a, um, you know, launch the product at all costs and, and, you know, just do what you can to keep ahead of the competition. Instead of thinking about it as, you know, why do we launch products? We launch products because we think that they enrich the lives of our customers and that we can help our customers achieve things that they need to do in their lives or help them feel better about themselves or help them, you know, manage their lives more simply or whatever it was, was the product. 
that's the reason for the product. And 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 if you don't put those those needs of those customers at the at the center of everything, then it's not surprising you keep launching products that fail, that people that nobody really wants and that nobody really knows how to use. And I realized that it was like trying to, you know, steer a, an oil tanker with a by pushing against it with a pencil. We just weren't ever going to make these giant juggernaut massive companies change in any meaningful way their culture just by doing user research tests. And so what I realized was that if I wanted to change how things happened, uh, it would be better to try and change the mindset of the younger startup founders who were just starting out and, and get them to believe in this idea that keeping your focus very much on on uh, understanding your customers and your users and, and the people around and delivering products that they find so useful that they will happily buy them and so easy to use that they won't need to bother you with customer support because everything is intuitive and obvious. That was my vision. But you can't do that with a big company that's existed for hundreds of years that's got a, a, a sort of a, a load of inertia. But my bet was that maybe I could help some startups to, to do that. Yeah. Um, because they had less legacy and they were more open to ways of doing it. And I, call, I used to think about it like UX is the phrase that we use to talk about the user experience yeah. field. And so I call my consulting firm UX DNA because I believe that you could get this into people's DNA at the start of the company and then they would, as, the, as they grew, it would remain a part of their, of their ethics. And I, you know, I can't say I've had a huge, can't point to massive successes, but I think what's happened is the whole world has shifted now and with the advent of the book the lean startup and that whole movement in many ways what we got there was people taking what we were already doing in the user experience and usability and user research field and if you like weaponizing it for businesses so yeah. so instead of it being us saying hey this is the good right thing to do because you know hey morals and value and all of that suddenly eric reese is there going if you do it like this your company won't fail and you'll make more money and you, people invest in you. And that was the message that we, all that time in that field that I was in, failed to get across to, to the businesses. So Eric Reese was was basically yeah. replicating what you were trying to do. Yeah, and, and it was funny because when you read the first book, when he wrote the book, the, the UX community kind of split down the middle and half of the world went, oh, he's stealing all our stuff, you know, and he's doing that. And, and then the other half, and I was very much in this half, was like, thank God we now got a voice in, in the room and a seat at the table. And suddenly big companies are looking and going, hey, look at all these startups showing up and stealing our business and, and eating our lunch. How are they doing it? And everyone's like, oh, lean, lean startup, lean startup. Suddenly all the big companies start Stalling. saying, we want to be lean too, which I just use as a Trojan horse to say, oh, you mean user-centered? Yes, so do I. And, and so I started doing a lot of work with, with big companies who now wanted to be like startups. Mm. So I kind of slightly poach, poach a gamekeeper. I see. I, I see. So it's it. actually done full circle. Yeah, and then I just became a teacher, and then I then I realised I actually hated consulting and really loved teaching. So why why is that? I can't, I don't really know. I'd never. I you know it's sort of two things um, that I've come to very late in my life is I never thought of myself as a designer or as working in the world of design. I never ever would have used that word to describe what I do until about five years ago. Um, even though it was, and I, and I asked myself why that is. And I think it's because when I started out in my career in, in, in the eighties, um, the, the idea of a designer that was designer jeans and designer stubble and designer drugs and designer lunches and designer everything, everything was prefixed with the word designer. 
but it just meant it was just code for aesthetically polished Amazing. and expensive yeah. or and, and a bit wanky really a bit you know a bit kind of you know up its own up its own what's it whatever you know but it was very um it was all about the aesthetic it was all about the style you know it was all about the kind of superficial you had like philippe stark's mm. lemon squeezer that was mm. beautiful but utterly pointless and unfunctional and i remember that. you know and all these and, it, and designer didn't have anything to do with how things worked it was entirely about you know go faster stripes and trim and 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 aesthetic adornment rather than the user experience the user experience and how it works and you know steve jobs you, you know i'm not allowed to by law, I have to say Steve Jobs at least once in any talk I'm talking about my my, my <laughs> world. But no, he's he always said he said design isn't how it looks. Design is how it works. Yeah. Design isn't just how it looks. Design is about how it works. Is the actual quote. And he, and it's absolutely right. That's what design is. Design is not about what looks pretty. It's about how it fits into your life and how how it functions. Yeah, and how it delivers value and how how you you know all of those aspects are design. And it took me a very long time to realize that. I am a designer and I think like a designer. I'm just crap at aesthetics. I'm terrible at color and You're font. more the kind of like the builder, the practical, the sort of yeah, yeah, how yeah. it works. Basically. Yeah, I'm interested in the process of discovering what people need and discovering what products people want to use and invite into their lives. Um, and aesthetics is a part of that, but but it's not enough for something to be just good to look at. It has to also, you know, really good design does both. You know, if you look at, you know, Dita Rams and, and that kind of stuff. It was very, very functional, very, very beautiful products. Yeah. So what what if you give some examples of what you've designed? Uh, I can't point to any things of, of things I designed because what I mainly design now are organizations. I, I try and help people learn how to build the process of discovery into whatever it is that they're making. So, you know, I, I think about design as just a structured way of, of problem solving. It's a way of navigating um an uncertain space you know it's it's you know we don't know what we don't know exactly what problem we're trying to solve and we don't know what the solution's going to look like so mm. how do we move through that and mm. there's lots of different ways you can just you know you can have one you know guy standing up saying i know where we're going and everyone just follows him and it usually is a him and that's that's what we think design was you know that's it's like the visionary designer the great inventor you know this genius Steve Jobs' character who can see what the future needs before they even know it, and Henry Ford and, you know, all of that stuff. Mm. Um, and that's a traditional, again, a traditional vision we have of what that is, but actually that's not very effective and, and it's very rare and, and there aren't many people like that and even they aren't really like that. Yeah. So instead what you need is you need a, a process that allows a team, because it usually is done as a team, yeah. to start from maybe an idea or start from maybe a problem they've discovered. Yeah. And move forward to explore whether or not that idea is as good as they think it is. And by as good, I mean, does it solve a problem that people need solved? Yes. You know, is it actually going to help people? Yeah. Because we can build products that people, you, you can sell, but they won't sell more than once. And, and you know, if, if, you know, and there's a, you know, anyone's phone, you look at anybody's iPhone or anybody's Android phone, there are pages and pages of apps that got downloaded once and never used. Mm. Each one of those apps is probably six months of someone's life, maybe, maybe more, you know, late nights and missing kids' birthdays and all this. They've invested all this huge effort to launch that product and you download it, open it once and never did it again. And the company may have already gone bankrupt by the time, you know, you, you even noticed. So, so there's clearly a problem with, with, building products that people need and will be willing to continue to use mm -hmm. and design in my in my eyes is just a way of 
of recognizing our own uncertainty in those things and navigating towards a position of of a successful product through that uncertainty that's what i would say okay so so again so thinking, I, yeah. thinking about the, the the end user which is always important mm. you know to test it to test test the market mm. whilst you're building and you know your so you um your background is is user experience and service design but you actually studied um you know, social, um, sorry, you studied uh, social psychology and management sciences. Yes. How did you sort of switch, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the weird thing, I, I went to do my, my my official course, I think was called Management Science and Marketing. And because it, because I'd sort of, I'd been interested in, in the world of, you know, business studies and things like that in my A-levels. And, and the university had, this seemed like it was a, a good course. But what happened is I basically got there and, and I think within about a week, realized that the one thing I was going to learn from a, a marketing degree was that I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to work in marketing. You know, I realized very, very quickly that I that I was not into what I believed marketing was, was at the time. That I remember it was the first week and they showed us this slide and it was that that quote about, you know, if a man builds a better mousetrap, the world will be to pass to his door. Meaning if you have a better product, everyone will automatically want to come and buy it. And, you know, the lecturer stood up and he put that quote up and he said, that is nonsense. Doesn't matter how good your mousetrap is, what you need is marketing. And I was just like, that's insane. That's, that's, that's not. What, what, are I... you, what are you marketing? Well, exactly. You know, and, but their, their, their line was, you know, it doesn't really matter about the product. What matters is the brand and how you can, and what people perceive. It was very much the kind of end of the 1970s and sort of the sort of 1980s vibe of, you know, it's all about brand. It's all about symbolism. It's all about, you know you know, the, the patina you put on the brand rather than whether or not it actually works. And that may be true, but it wasn't a world I wanted to live in. I didn't want that to be true. And so I never really wanted to go into marketing at all. In fact, I've, I loathe most of what marketing is is set up to do, you know, even though I recognize what we're doing right now is a form of marketing. But but I, I just always found that the, the the obsession with branding just felt weird. Well, it depends what kind of marketing... You know how in depth you're going. Yeah, yeah. You, know, I, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not a kind of radical, you know, smash the smash the marketing department. But I do think that that, with a few exceptions, ultimately people buy or invite products into their lives because they have some sort of need. They might not be able to verbalize the need very clearly, but things do things for us. Mm. You know, we buy drinks because we're thirsty. You mm. know, what drink we choose, well, we can we can discuss, but fundamentally most products exist to serve some basic human need even mm. something like facebook it's it's hard to define what it's for because it's many things but one thing it's definitely for is feeling in contact with our communities you mm. know whether it does it well or badly that was one of the reasons why it became popular was it reconnected us with things in our past and it reconnected us with people that we can't see regularly because nobody was writing postcards or letters or anything like that anymore and it was it filled that gap uh, and Definitely. then it does loads of other things. Um, so, you know, I just, I'm a, I'm a, I guess I'm a, I'm a product guy, really. Mm. Um, and how I got there, well, I, um, I left school. Uh, I worked um, for not very long uh, for a Swedish company. Um, and at the mean, in the meantime, I got very much into the kind of uh, underground rave scene back in the oh, early 90s, end of the 80s. Oh, interesting. Well. Um, Hmm? Where? Uh, I was at college in Lancaster. So oh. we were going to Manchester and Hacienda and, and kind of, oh, nice. you know, that that whole northwest. New um, order. 
Yeah, New Order and, and all that. Yeah, exactly. All of that crew, yes. Mm. Um, and, and there was all of that. There was all these big warehouse parties going on in, in the, the wastelands of the kind of northern industrial collapse and, the, you know, post-Thatcher, you know, mills closed down. It was just all these empty warehouses that were, were being turned into, uh, you know, illegal parties. And I, I became absolutely fascinated by that world and absolutely loved it and, you know, kind of immersed myself in it. Um, and, 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 and ended up, um, ended up actually going to the States and, and organizing some parties there and, and kind of living there for a couple of years. And what I thought was similar parties. Yeah. Raves. Yeah. So sort of, you know, in, 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 in the States for, for a bit. And, and one of the things I realized many years later, looking back at it is I think one of the things that fascinated me about the world that we were in was, um, we were all, we were all obviously getting some incredibly valuable human thing out of the experience of going to these parties and meeting people and finding these and dancing in fields. And there was something immensely valuable to us to such that people kind of dropped other chunks of their lives in order to pursue this, 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 you know, maybe quite hedonistic, but nonetheless, very profound feeling, exciting period of our lives. And, and yet there was no product what was what was what were we buying what were we consuming and the idea is what, what i realized we were consuming was a pure experience so what we'd you know and, and the experience involved the excitement of the, you know having to find the party and the kind of risk of it not happening and the illegality of what you were doing you know when you get to these illegal parties and, and all of that well i think also exploring um the you know what goes on in in our minds yeah exactly and all of that you know and, and and meeting all these different types of people and and you know experiencing kind of worlds where where you know different rules applied and and so what i realized was that what we were doing what, what these parties were doing were they were designing experiences for mm, people yeah. and i realized that that's what we did with the parties we did in the states is we would design as much as we could not the exact experience but we would set it up in such a way that you would encounter it in a in a in a way that would provide meaning and impact in your life. And I realized that that's, that was amazing. You know, I think, and, and, and these, these experiences affect people, you know, for, for many, many years. And, and so I realized that what I'm interested in is really experience design. Like how can you create good experiences through products and services and, and, you know, and, and environments that we create, you know, like even things like a really good piece of theater, it's an experience design. You're bringing people into something Mm. And good products can be like that, and really smooth services, you know, services can can be like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what? So what are you in terms of like, you know, designing experiences now? You you say you've got into teaching. No, that's what I design now. Just teaching. So you're teaching experiences. Yeah, I I try to design a good teaching experience for my students or a good learning experience for my students. You know, and and I and I've heard some very good feedback. (laughs) (laughs) It's been really fun. You know, I I really enjoy. Um, being able to share my own um, experiences, experiences, and view of the world. Really, my my own um, take on 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 what it means to be a successful entrepreneur. What it what it means to 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 make a difference in the world, and 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 how um, it requires a lot more thought and learning than we think, and maybe a lot less of building and marketing than we think. You know, the, the goal of most startups, if you if you say, you know, what are your immediate goals? They'll say, well, we need to raise money and we need to get our product launched. And I think neither of those things are that important in the early stages of a startup and, and in some cases ever. You know, I mean, the 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 goal of the, the startup before you build anything is to decide what you're going to build, you mm-hmm. know, and 
again, we're back to that thing. You can you can say you can trust in the vision of the founder and say they know exactly what to build because they're a genius founder and and, and everything they do is t- turning to gold. But that's unlikely to be true. Yeah, you know, statistically unlikely to be true that one person has got the perfect vision and all the answers. That's not really how reality works. So, so what I'm interested in with the the students I'm working with and the teams I'm working in is how can you learn if what you're doing is worth launching or how can you decide what you actually need to make you know what is the product that the cut that that the the market or the consumers need you to launch right now so what questions should they be answering um mostly it's about um trying to understand where your solution if we want to call it that product or service is another way of putting it where that shows up in people's lives um you know, at what point in, in the daily life of the person you're designing for, are they going to encounter and use your product? And, and, and if, that's, if you can get that clear, then it makes it a lot easier to work out what your product needs to do and where it needs to be and how you need to, you know, how, um, what features you might need and, and how much it might cost. Once you understand the people you're designing it for, it's, it's an awful lot easier. It's a little bit like um, buying a gift. You know, um, so we've never met. Um, and I could, if, if I decided I wanted to buy you a birthday, birthday gift, I could probably buy something based on my stereotypical interpretation of, 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 you know, your gender, your age, your, you know, income, your, your background, but it would be very much me making my best guess based on nothing to do with you, but like assuming that you're like lots of other people. Yeah. But like like buying a gift for a nine year old. Yeah. It'd be like a generic gift yeah. that would be non-offensive you you probably wouldn't mind it but you probably wouldn't think it was perfect on the other hand if your oldest friend were to buy you a gift they, there's a very good chance it would be something you'd be like oh my god and it would resonate with you and you would understand why because they know you and they know your life and they know what you like to do and they know what you dislike and they've spent this time with you so get to know your customers get to know your customers you know you are in a way buying a gift for them you know you and you should understand them deeply enough then that that you don't just generically go oh this is a product for a user no this is this is a product for you know ian and he lives here and he does this and what he's struggling with is this and therefore our product helps him with that Mm. and and you can focus very tightly and you can start with literally just one customer you know if you can identify that one customer and and help them then you can build out from there you know then you can say okay well now we're learning from ian let's see if there are any other people a little bit like ian Let's see where we can find them. And then we can then be our second customer. There we go. You know, and I think too many startups and too many businesses focus on how we're going to get to a million customers, whereas you need to know how you're going to get to one before you're going to get to a million. And when you push most startup founders, they have no idea. You know, they're, they're really not clear on that at all. Mm. And, and that's, that's kind of what I try and do in this course. It's like, okay, not who's going to be your millionth. Who is going to be the first person who, when you show up, is going to be, oh, my gosh, yes, please. So how do you tell the students to, to, to test their product? Um, we spend a lot of time teaching them how to listen well to customers, a lot of, t- a lot of you know, how to hear what people are saying, how to observe what, what people are doing. Um, and so the first step is just trying to get any idea about who you think might be your customer. So the, one of the, one of the um, projects at the moment is about um, helping families with uh children manage the children's money and so so the children learn kind of financial literacy a little bit a little bit earlier and they learn about the value of money and and savings and they learn 
basic financial literacy, like what's a mortgage and what's a loan and, and all that. And the idea is to is to help children learn that. And, and it could be through like a pocket money app or it might be through a, a child's bank account. But, but the student who's working on this project, um, she interviewed a, a few people here. Um, she interviewed a few parents who, who kind of fitted into that, her initial idea about who the target market would be. And she interviewed me because I'm, I'm in that. Yeah. And what was great is, is that it became very, very clear to her quite quickly that actually the, the, the market or the customers in Europe who have kids don't face this problem um, because the, the student in concern is from, from South America, Latin America. And she realized that the, the way that parents and kids see money there is completely different from over here like there's because of the legacy of things like hyperinflation that have happened and very unstable economies and, and and lack of trust in institutions and just a lack of a kind of mature financial services sector so it's sector. a cultural thing yeah it's it's a cultural thing and yeah so you're selling you know you're talking about something that in in Europe and Spain there is no need for because we kind of know what mortgages are and most of us have had bank accounts so she's realized that instead of wasting time trying to launch a product here, she needs to go and focus on, on the Latin American yeah. market and see if that's where the product needs to exist. And that's where she's from. And that's where she's from. Yeah, it's great. So, so that, that makes sense. Well, it? yeah, exactly. She's sort of solving her own problem, which is, you know, so yeah, it's a, it's just about that. It's about... Um, well, well it, funnily enough, you know, I was interviewing somebody yesterday who was talking about how important it is when you're building teams for startups to, to be, you know, diverse and inclusive. Yeah. So that you're getting people from different backgrounds yeah. uh, who understand, you know, culturally what it means, but also coming from different uh, sectors as well. It's absolutely vital. Yeah, I mean, it's you know one of the um, one of the reasons I think why the lean startup movement was was so popular was because it, it addressed directly a very common tendency amongst um, the sort of people who build Silicon Valley startups, which until quite recently has been um, young, predominantly male software engineers yeah. or, or technical yeah. people, um, which is which is absolutely fine. Um, but the, that that particular audience sometimes has a tendency to very extreme tunnel vision and very great obsession with the technological and engineering aspects of whatever it is they're building. You know, it's there is a sort of assumption that the, the best tech wins, and you know, of course, my product's going to win because it performs better than yours without really understanding that that's not what how people experience the world. We don't go around optimizing everything to the nth degree. Most people bumble through their lives, you know, barely finding time to fit in all the things they need to do. And they haven't got time to obsess about tuning every product for its highest performance. So I think one of the things that the Lean Startup Movement did, one of the phrases that came out of it is this phrase called get out of the building. You know, and it's basically the idea is that we can sit around in this room and talk about what important important features we need to build. Uh, but unless we're the customers, what meaning do our answers have? It doesn't matter what we think. The, what matters is what our customers need. And mm. so the idea is get out of the building and talk to them. The answers you need are not in this room. The answers you need are out there in the mm. real world. Mm. Get out of the building. And and fortunately, because that message was coming from Steve Blank and who's very respected entrepreneur and a couple of other people it resonated really well it mm. wasn't a load of hippy dippy designers like me going hey wouldn't it be nice you know it was actually mm. hey you want to make your billions get out of the building and so a few people did it and, it and it started being popular and it started this idea that diversity is a good thing and that, and that having other voices in your in your production process and your design process is is important to not not just 
um, your customers' voices, but a diversity of of other people inside your team. And I think that's absolutely yeah. true. Well, there's no good sort of, you know, um, sort of saying, well, actually, you know, I'm going to start working as part of this team because they are, you know, they have a similar outlook mm. to me. Mm. You want to have a different outlook. Yeah. It's and hard, yeah, but it's true, you know. But but the, but the it's it's a thing that, that people in in not just in Silicon Valley, but in engineering focused startups generally really struggle with is the they talk about culture fit, and that sounds like a really positive thing, like hey, you need to fit into our culture. But very often, what they're meaning is you need to accept our rather misogynist, you know, not very healthy, pretty toxic work environment. Because hey, man, you know, we're moving fast and breaking things, and that's fine. I think that's gone i think i think that's those sort of organizations are going to really struggle mm. in the future yeah. um and i think you know i think the 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 divergent voices you know it's not about being woke or hippie it just makes sense you know having people whose opinions are different from the rest of the team is going to help 100 percent. You know? <laughs> because you know they want people who are going to be thinking out of the box you know, with their own ideas, and, and everybody has a voice. Yeah, and you want to bring other people's other people's voices to to the design process. You know, understanding um, why certain designs won't work for pe certain people is a really crucial thing. It's better you find it out early than than later. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, you've been a startup mentor and a design thinker for over ten years, and. You know, so what? How do you, how do you find it? You know, well, number one, how did you discover Hyperspace, and and what do you think of the unconventional way of teaching about startups? Uh, I heard about Harvestspace, I think, through Don Ritson, who um, oh, yes, I know. Don, uh, and I discovered Don through a Lean Startup Weekend event in 2011 in Rotterdam, um, where I met his colleague. Uh, at Rockstart, which was their incubator, their yeah. accelerator, um, and and it was the kind of the, the nascent stage of the of the Dutch startup kind of flowering that's happened since then. Um, and and there was a few people who were at that first event who you know um, we've all gone off and done stuff. And Don's one, and and um, uh, Robert Geldrop's another one, and, yeah. and, and all of that, Salvarani and, and Rob Fitzpatrick, and, and all of this crew. Um, so we've we all kind of met at that point, um, and I stayed in touch with um, Don because I used to come in and, and give workshops at, for his startups in in Amsterdam when they were running Rockstar or when he was running Rockstar. When was this? Probably twenty. 13 to 2018 probably okay because yeah, yeah, Amsterdam has certainly become yeah that. yeah yeah no it's um yeah so so I I met I met Don um and Don I think introduced me to Lena um and I I really like the idea I mean I think um to Lana yeah hmm? to Lana introduce you to Lana uh, no, Lena, I think, is the person. Uh, the, you mean the Don, Don introduced me to Helena? Ah, yes, to Lena here. Yeah, um, that's how I kind of came, made my connection here. Um, and I was, you know, I was, I kept a, a watching eye on it. It took took a while for me to to jump on board, mainly because I wasn't entirely sure what I would necessarily teach. You yeah. Know? Um, because I knew the kind of focus on high tech entrepreneurship, and and then Don Don um, asked me if I could take over this module for him, um, and the time was right, and it seemed like the right thing to do, and and I said yes, and 
I have to say, I'm absolutely thrilled. I'm really what I like about it because I teach at other I teach other courses in in other academic um, institutions. Uh, what are the other courses you teach? I teach uh, a course in technology for social innovation, mm-hmm. which is a three. It's a collaboration between three universities, an engineering school here, a business school, and a design school. Oh yes, um, which is really fun. And what what we do there is we we work with um, researchers and and um, postdoctoral researchers in in academic institutions all over Europe. Uh, mm. And we find, well, they submit their latest developments, whatever works. So you know, a better way of of um, testing DNA strands, for example, something like that, or sequencing DNA. Um, and we pair them with student teams and the students then spend three months exploring that technology and working out how it could be applied for social good. Like, so oh, wow. you know, how could we, how could we take this technology and apply it to help us solve pr- problems that, that, that we face as a society? So that's really fun. I do that. There's a summer school and there's a, there's a, um, a three month course as well. Mm. Um, there's other EIT. Uh, no, that is um, Esade, uh, Esade and UPC and IED. They're the, they're the three schools involved in that. That's actually a European Union funded. So we collaborate with CERN in Geneva for that. That's really cool. We wow. we, we, go, we get to visit the Large Hadron Collider and do all that sort of cool stuff. But um, so there's a summer school of that, and then there's a there's other stuff. But but what what's different about this course and what I love about Harbour Space is the focus. You know, I love the fact that. I get to spend three solid weeks with these students and we can really immerse ourselves in this stuff because the type of work that we're doing really benefits from a full focus on it, like immersing yourself in the exploration of your customers and, and you know, as if it was your startup and that was all you, I mean, they are, they're, they're setting up their own businesses, their capstone projects are meant to be businesses. So, mm. so the idea that you can, you can, try out these new skills and these new ways of thinking new new ways of thinking that I'm trying to sort of inculcate and help them adopt in the presence of somebody who can help you work on the real material you're working on like yeah. they're really going out there and they're really talking to customers and they're struggling to make sense of what they're hearing and they can come to me and we can talk through what they've heard and we can try and make sense of it together and try and not only learn about the the business they're trying to develop but develop the skills that will help them develop any future business or this one so the idea is that we equip them, even if what they're working on right now doesn't ever come to fruition, if their company that they're building right now doesn't succeed, they will have learned the skills that will make the future companies more likely to succeed and, and, and more focused around understanding customers and users. That's, that's what I, I want. Okay. So what, what are the, some of the things that you know, students say when they're exposed to your ways of you know, delivering your course? Um... I mean, I hope they say nice things. I mean, the, the main thing I want is I want them to shift the, the way they see the world. You know, I think once you start seeing the world as a designer sees the world and, 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 and start looking at, you know, how people do things in their lives and, and just becoming curious about how, you know, how people use the tools that they see in their lives and, and how they encounter the world. Once you start seeing the world like that, you can't unsee it. And, and, and it changes the way you think about what constitutes a successful product or what constitutes a, a business that's doing good in the world. You know, I think there's a moral and ethical dimension that goes with it. Mm. You know, if you're, if you care genuinely about people, um, you want to build them the best possible thing you can, you know, you, that comes with a sort of 
You're solving a problem. Yeah, and, and it comes with an, an, an emotional and empathic aspect. You don't want to let down your customers. You know, when, you know it, it's whatever I've, I've, I've done in my life, I've always... Um, my main thing is trying to think about what's going to give the most value to the person I'm trying to work with. Um, and I can't always say I've done that at all, but but recognizing that you're doing it for the person and that if it works, they will give you money rather than the other way around, if you see what I mean. Mm. So, so if you build your business mm. around making sure that your customers are insanely happy, it's not hard to make money. Yes. You know, if you actually think, you know, and, most, and, if, and, and the great argument in favor of both those things is, you know, the two, two out of the four most valuable companies that have ever existed on this earth are Apple and Amazon. And the two of them are obsessed and always have been from the beginning with great user experiences and looking, putting their customers' needs, their customers' delight ahead of anything else. Yeah. To, to the extent that they, they have then actually ended up doing harm because they put their employees too far down the line. Like Amazon employees get a shitty time so that all of the customers get a great time. Yeah. And, that, you know, there's a moral rebalancing that needs to happen there, I think. But, Definitely. but yeah. the, you know, again, when back in the, you know, the 2000s when it was, we were trying to convince companies to invest in design and they were like, what's the ROI on design? And I can just po point at Apple and, and Amazon and say, there you are. That's the ROI on design. They're the ones who are kicking your ass in every market because, you know, look at like tech support, you know, think about tech support. Talk about experience design like we were earlier. Think about what tech support is for most other brands, like most technology companies like HP, your computer goes wrong. If you're lucky, you call up a helpline, you know, using an HP, yeah, nothing, using nothing, gets, nothing gets <laughs> HP. I'm, that I must have subliminally noticed. Yeah. But, um, but you know, something goes wrong, you, you ring them up, you get a, get a kind of probably a, a 900 number, so you pay to call them up and you sit on hold and eventually you get through and somebody who doesn't necessarily speak very clearly or you can't, you know, isn't necessarily um, in the country that you're calling from, We'll talk you through a set of standardized diagnostics and, you know, and, and, and then if you're unfortunate, they won't fix it and they'll say, right, you need to bring it to a, to a dealership. And so what do you do? You go to some dusty industrial estate on the edge of town and drop it off in a, in a you know, customer service place or you take it to ship in. And that's your experience of a bad thing going wrong with your product. Apple, your problem goes wrong. What do you do? You, you, you book an appointment with a genius, right? You go to a cathedral of of Apple. You go walk into one of their stores, which is like going into, you know, some beautiful air-filled, light-filled cathedral, and you walk through all these, you know, beautiful objects, and um, and you end up meeting a genius who kind of absolves you of your sins and fixes your product, and and that's it. And that is right in the middle of the, your city. It is a prime real estate. Now th that's an expensive thing to do you know putting your tech support taking up a third of the floor space of your of your retail in very very expensive part of town doesn't immediately make commercial sense it, it's an any financially motivated company would have said don't be ridiculous why on earth we don't make any money from this you can't mm. measure how much you know in fact the opposite we we you know apple probably do make money on repairs but of course they do. it's not a goal you know it's like it's a it's a it's an afterthought whereas apple are like no this is part of the apple experience but you know, they, but they also are very good at making sure that you update your products and spend money on. Well, one of the reasons they do that is if it goes wrong, instead of going to this dusty, you know, estate, you have to walk past all the latest beautiful objects, and you mm. will probably look at one and go, maybe I, it's gone wrong. Maybe I just need a new one. It's genius, but it's genius beyond just the financial focus. They, they, you know, if their short-term goal was to make as much money as possible, they would never have done that. If their long-term goal was to build. Uh, 
you know, build this experience and build the brand from that experience, this experience of everything just working and everything being slightly, you know, um, airy and slightly, you know, very beautiful and light and smooth and, you know, that that's the experience they deliver through that. And that's what the brand becomes. And that's why one of the reasons why they're so successful. Yeah. You know, so, but, so in terms of, you know, obviously Apple and, and Amazon, you've given an, an example and obviously, you know, you talked about design, you know, being so many years ago, back in the sort of 80s, 90s, it wasn't very practical. So mm. where are we at in terms of design and where are we going? Um, I think in terms of my particular field of design, human-centered design or, or experience design, service design, whatever you want to call it, um, it has it has moved from very much the kind of Cinderella of of a lot of the product world or of the business world to becoming quite significant front and center in a lot of companies, um, even if they don't necessarily name it as such. But, you know, the focus on on customer experience. Customer design thing. experience. Yeah, yeah. And some, you know, there are, there are, you know, a lot of companies now have a chief experience officer as there who's actually in the C-suite, C-suite with, with the other, the executives. Um, I think we're seeing an expectation of, of good design in, in, you know, even in things like packaging, and we're seeing an expectation of better design in terms of design for recyclability and design for lower consumption of, of resources. And I think that's probably where we're going with design. We, we've, you know, we're a long way to go. There's an awful lot of very badly designed products and services out there. You know, um, a lot of government services um, around the world are, are pretty poor and could be better designed. Um, a lot of company services are very poor, but products generally seem to be getting a little bit more well-designed, I think, less less complicated to use. Um, but the future, I think, needs to be beyond human-centered design to kind of ecologically-centered design. I think we need to start looking not just at the people who use the products, but the... What are the, they made of? Yeah, what they're made of, what happens to them after they're finished, you know, how we can, how we can you know, reduce... The impact that they will have, yeah, you yeah. know, sort of planetary-centered design, if you like, you know, yeah. start thinking about, yeah. you know, oh, I mean, look at the mess planetary we're in. Planetary-centered, I like yeah. that. Yeah, well, look, I mean, the mess, you know, you could say that design has got us into this mess, yeah, and so we need to get us out of it too, yeah. because bad design or or unconscious design, and when I said what I mean by that, so like a plastic water bottle is is a fantastically useful thing. It's radically changed many, many, many people's lives being able to access, you know, clean, sterile, lightweight, you know, bottles that you can keep things in. That's great. You know, it's it's saves people's lives in disasters and things like that because they're designed with only that. And and the the impact on the rest of the world is completely ignored. It's not what the designer has to take into account. The person who's designing a new plastic bottle for Pepsi up until very recently didn't have to think about what happened when it was done. It was mm. there to contain and show off Pepsi and make it look beautiful and enhance the brand. Once it was gone, it's not really Pepsi's problem. And that's changing now. Companies are no longer accepting that the design stops when when the product dies. Mm. And they're starting to have to design the whole life cycle of mm -hmm. the product and what mm. happens afterwards. And 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 come and people are starting to pick that up. You know, I mean you can avoid, you know, you can avoid buying products that that people that don't include that kind of consciousness. Yeah. So that's where I think we're going. Planetary planetary centered design. Planetary centered design. Planetary -centered you know, design. Is, that, is that used a lot? Uh, I don't know. I, 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 I'm sure I'm not the only person. I, I thought I'd made it up, but I probably didn't. I'm not the only person who's ever used that. And it doesn't even it's, really work grammatically. I think it's troubling because 
you, it's kind of a bit weird to be planetary centered because it's everywhere. How can you be centered on something that's so anyway? But no, but the but it's better than saying sustainable. Yeah, think. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I think you know, yeah. It, it sort of it sort of makes more sense. But so you know, well this well this is great, and also you know, apart from teaching, which is yes. your main focus now, in your spare time. You also like to make fermented and smoked foods and, <laughs> and play around with 3D printers yeah. and other maker technology. Yes. And you're the co-founder of Barcelona's make, Made BCN Makerspace yes. and co-producer of Barcelona Mini Maker Fair. Is yeah. that with um, the co-working space? Uh, the first ones we did were with uh, Celia Tam at, Celia Tam, uh, at right. uh, Mob, at Makers of Barcelona, yes. yes. So she, we, we ran into Celia right after we moved back to Barcelona in 2012. And I had recently seen my first Maker Fair in Brighton. Um, and Maker Fair is a collection of, it's an event for people to come and show off the things they've made with what you might call modern digital fabrication techniques like 3D printing and laser cutting and, and you know, um, electronics toys you can make. And basically, it's become very easy to have access to really quite high-end tools that used to be the, the purview of big industry you know you can get a 3d printer now for 200 bucks that will mm. turn out really adequate 3d models mm. and stuff you can get laser cutters and, and and so i think it's really cool i've always been a bit of a tinkerer i've always loved making stuff um and and so uh we ran into like-minded people and decided we wanted to launch the maker fair and out of that came the maker space which is still around i'm not a member anymore because i don't i don't live in barcelona um and and that's really i love it i just really enjoy because i'm crap with my hands i'm terrible i'm very clumsy i'm not at all good at precision sort of hand you know work on wood and things like that but i'm pretty good at thinking how to build things in in design software you know i know yeah. how to use 3d design software and and you know illustrator and and all these other kind of things and and so this gets me past my clumsiness and allows me to kind of play around with ideas i'm not you know it's I, I'm, I'm a clumsy hobbyist, but I love doing it. I You're really the ingredients it. maker. Oh, and food. I mean, just food. I just love food. I love, you know, I, I've always loved cooking and, and and making beautiful foods and the fermenting and the smoking. I seem to just like preserving stuff. I don't know. So are we going to see any, you know, fermented fairs popping I, I, up? I think, I mean, I, I eat a lot of it. Um it's one of those things that you know. I, I, I give people stuff, and they're like, "Oh my god, you should you should sell this." Oh, I don't really want to. I, I, it's a hobby. I love doing it. I don't I don't want to have to turn something I love doing into a job. <laughs> I mean, because a job's fun. I love doing this job. I love teaching, but the hobby is the hobby, and that's fine. And mm. and I'm you know again, like I said, I like starting stuff. Maybe I don't want to run it, but teaching's great because it's always different people. You know, I love working with super smart people from around the world, and and Harbour Space is is has turned out to be absolutely delightful for that. You know? In terms of the students, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're such a lovely bunch and they are, you know, they're from all over the place. And, you know, I'm I'm trying to, I, I try and write, strike the balance between, you know, pushing them, um, but also recognizing that we're in a process of exploration and, and that, you know, they need to discover uh, the things they need to discover about their projects. I don't know what they're going to find, you know, so they have to come back to me and say, we learned this about our customers. What do we do with it? And we talk about it and we try and make sense of it. And and there aren't really any right answers. There's there's only steps closer to your goal, you know? Yes. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that the students are, are enjoying it 
so much because it, you're kind of you're making them explore. Yes, I think yeah. so. I think so. So giving them that opportunity is is probably a little bit sort of you know taking it a step further. Basically. Yeah, I think so. I mean, yeah. I, you know, it's I I think what I think I hope that one of the things that comes across in my lectures is I'm really fascinated by all this. I'm really I think about it a lot. I'm intrigued by it. I'm excited by it. I think you know I think there's changes to be made that that need to be made. You know, yeah. the world is a mess. You know, yeah. we've, we've got got ourselves to a terrible spot. Yeah. Um and times I just want to curl up and, and give it all up and it's very depressing the mess that the world is in but then I think well no you know I'm, it's you've got to have a crack at you know not letting it all fall apart yes exactly um, so you're right at the um yeah the, the start the startup of it <laughs> yeah the makers the doers the designers yeah. and, the, and the inventors and the rethinkers exactly yeah. exactly no and that's what I love being around I've always loved being around people like that yeah. Well, Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure talking oh, to you Oh, my pleasure. Today. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, it's all about, you know, discovering who you are and, yes. you know, your course at Harper Space and, you know, having a, a conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. This was another episode of the See You Tomorrow podcast. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Harbour Space, visit harbour.space and we'll see you tomorrow.